Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup, where Jacob Hansen and DBs are going to ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. This is July 16th, 2023. This is episode 68. We have Jacob Hansen, the thoughtful saint he's co-hosting. We have the Australian LDS tithing is stoking controversy and is in the news once again from the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, BYU steeplechase, uh, steeplechase athlete has won first place in the U.S. Nationals. What's next for him? And Moms for Liberty has gotten into the spotlight and there's an LDS connection. Cosmo the Cougar, he's, he's got engaged to another man, and we got an update on that. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it. And we're going to give you a fascinating analysis of LDS Sunday attendance statistics in the United States and much, much more. If you want to connect with me, I'm at www.mormonnewsroundup.org. You can send me an email to colab at mormonnewsroundup.org. I'd like to bring on to the program the thoughtful saint. Jacob, how's it going? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Hey, yeah, that's that's great. Now, your uh, your nickname is the Thoughtful Saint. There, uh, where did you get that nickname from? Uh, how'd you come up with that? So it was just uh, I was trying to think of a good uh, Twitter handle, and I'd already started uh, my uh, my uh, Thoughtful uh, Faith channel. That was I wanted to do something that was you know related to faith, and obviously I wanted to go kind of into the maybe more philosophical uh, end of it to a certain degree. And so I thought Thoughtful Faith would be interesting. And then when I was looking for a Twitter handle, uh, Thoughtful Faith, I don't think was available. So the next one was Thoughtful Saint. And so I put it in there and that's kind of how it all got started. I don't, uh, if, if you, if you define a saint as a sinner who's trying his best, that's uh, then maybe I fall under that definition of a saint. <laughs> yeah, because Thoughtful Faith, that was already taken by Gina Colvin, right? I mean, that podcast is over now, by the way. It just ended, I believe, about six months ago, but that was already taken up, right? Yeah, so I didn't even know about any of that when I started. I, I, I did. So hers is the only difference was is it was a thoughtful faith. Um, and I found out about that later. And I was like, oh, well, mine was called thoughtful faith. And I just ran with it and was like, well, I'm already started. So I'll keep yeah, going. So here's your channel here, thoughtful faith. What? Why did you start this YouTube channel? What's it all about? What do you focus on on the thoughtful uh, saint channel? you got about 10,000 subscribers, significantly more than the humble Mormon News Roundup. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, it got started basically um, as a way for me to express my thoughts and feelings about things related to the gospel, um, and it didn't really have much of a following. And then I did a debate with uh, some people at Apologia Church, it's a Calvinist church uh, down in uh, Mesa, Arizona. And when I did that, I, I began to actually get a lot of people that started to listen to me. <laughs> and then I had people who wanted to talk to me, and then I wanted to talk to other people, and it just kind of, just kind of grew from there. And the purpose of the group uh, or of the, the channel is really to strengthen existing Latter-day Saints faith in the restoration, uh, in Christ, and, uh, and basically to further the mission of the church. by And I try and contrast truth and, and falsehood. So that's kind of my, uh, my, my goal of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, so when, it, when you look at your Twitter account, it seems like your Twitter persona is, um, I would say, pretty confrontational. Is that deliberate? I mean, some people might even consider you to be a troll. Is that a fair assessment, or, or what are you trying to do with your Twitter account here? No, but I'm very hard on ideas. I try and be soft on people, but hard on ideas. And what's going on on Twitter, so far as I can tell, is that you have people that are really exchanging ideas with each other, uh, but not in a, it isn't a forum of deep, and thoughtful analysis and so a lot of the times i'll just kind of say hey this is a bad idea and here's why and i just drop it and i try and 
contrast things that are evil with things that are good and righteous. And so sometimes that, uh, that can rub people the wrong way. And I, you know, I'm going to just say up front, like I'm not a perfect person and maybe there's legitimate critique. And sometimes when you're in a mood one day and you know, you're laying in bed or bored and you tweet off something you shouldn't say, I may be guilty of that from time to time. So don't, uh, don't hold me totally. I mean, there's a certain percentage of my posts that I would probably just apologize for straight up. <laughs> That's fair enough. Now I watched uh, quite a few of your uh, YouTube. Uh, I haven't watched every video, but I watched quite a few of your YouTube channel. And, you know, I watched one of your recent uh, channels here. You had on uh, division confusion. You had Jim Benedon and with Steve Pinecker. By the way, I've had now all three of you on the program now, uh, both uh, Steve Pinecker, all three of you have now been on the Mormon news roundup and live to tell the tale. But I have to tell you that, um, I, you know, I have to remark, I'm a little bit saddened by the confrontational level of discourse and the lack of, I don't know if I could say a lack of Christian dialogue. How do you feel about that episode, which I believe is one of your most popular episodes. How do you feel about your, that episode and your tone and performance? So that episode, um, I was trying to contrast Jim and I's different perspectives uh, because we have very different perspectives. And not only that, I think we're emblematic of two different camps within the church. And so when and and that was sort of the goal of the interview was to help people to see that there is a divide here. Now, I tried my best in that interview, and I think I did all right, um, of staying on the topic of, hey, these are the things that divide us. And I was asking Jim to kind of explain how he arrived at the conclusions that he arrived to, specifically how he arrives at the conclusion that uh, gay marriage is not inherently sinful, that it could be justified, why he he sort of expects for the church to eventually change its position on those things. And obviously he was very defensive about that. Um, and, and so it, it, there was a lot of conflict. However, I, I don't know that I engaged in personal attacks and I'm not a, I don't have a problem with conflict. Um, I think conflict is necessary at times in order to resolve issues. We don't want to just sit there and hide and act like there aren't real serious, legitimate disagreements. And I, I have the goal to get in there and actually expose the nature of these differences, not for the sake of creating differences, but so that we can resolve them, so that we can figure out where we stand. And if we, we can't resolve them, then ultimately, yeah, there are lines to where, you know, there are some beliefs in the church that, you know, if a, if a person in the church believes in the Trinity and is teaching the Trinity, that's a problem. <laughs> you know, we do believe things in this church. And because we believe X, that means we don't believe Y. And so we need to understand when, you know, what do we actually stand for as Latter-day Saints? And, and you know, when you have two people who have very different opinions, um, there's going to be conflict. But I, I, I felt like Jim, Jim was much more emotionally elevated than I was in that interview. Yeah. Um, now, I believe that you have said in the time past that uh, about your personal life that uh, quite a few members of your family have left the church. I'm just wondering, is there anything else about your religious uh, uh, religious beliefs or personal life that you want to share before we hop in the news articles for this week? Um, I just point people to my channel. Um, I have a, a series of videos on my story um, and a lot of people, a lot. It's probably the one that I get the most messages about have said that my story has helped them immensely. Um, I'm, I'm, there's eight siblings in my family. I'm the only one left in the church. Uh, of my eight siblings, my parents are still uh, active in the church. Um, and that is um, my story of how I kind of dealt with that, but but not just from an emotional thing, but like intellectually, like how do I deal with all of the uh, attacks that you get from every different corner, whether that be the atheists or whether that be evangelicals, and kind of how I, a, a system of thought 
and a process I went through with that to sort of resolve my issues and to really come into a place of really comfortable faith uh, where I am now without ignoring the issues. Well, we're really grateful that uh, you came onto the program. It's been a long time in the making, so uh, really appreciate you being here. That does bring us to, we always start every one of our Mormon News Roundup episodes with a joke of the week. And uh, we actually, we both kind of found this one from the Babylon Bee here. Disney tries to appeal to Angel Studios, Mormon audience with Indiana Jones and the plates of Nephi. I guess they're going for the, uh, <laughs> I guess they're going for the uh, Mormon, the Mormon corridor here. Indiana Jones is about to go full Mormon, says Disney CEO Bob Iger. If you can't beat them, join them. And of course, it's a parody account here, but uh, uh, did you watch Indiana Jones, the latest one there, Jacob? Or I haven't seen the latest oh, okay. one, but I've heard terrible things about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that also brings me to another meme here. Wait, you weren't joking when you asked me to find Zara Hemla? <laughs> Uh, no, we weren't joking about that. Uh, I run another channel that's called the uh, Mormon Movie Reviews, and there's a very, very interesting Mormon uh, film that was uh, released back by Chris Heimerdinger, The Tennis Shoes Among the Nephites, called Passage to Zarahemla. And uh, that also is a Mormon joke of the week, by the way. If you've never watched that video, that's pretty funny, too. And that also, uh, not, not to be outdone here, we had one last adventure here. We have Hugh Nibley and the White Horse Prophecy. Which one, which movie would you rather see, Jacob? Indiana Jones? And the uh, search for Zarahemla or Hugh Nibley and the White Horse Prophecy. I'm a I'm a Hugh Nibley guy, man. I love Hugh Nibley, so let's uh, let's let's go with that. Yeah, that, I, I watch either one definitely. Now, our first news article for the week here is uh, a BYU uh, runner here, uh, Mr. Uh, Kenneth Rooks. Here, he made national news here. He was in the U.S. Uh, championship for the. He runs the steeplechase. He's a BYU. He's currently a junior attending school and uh uh you know he's thinking about going professional but he crossed the finish line to win the men's 3000 meter steeplechase during the final of the u.s track and field championships in oregon just a couple of days ago he's got a bright future here and uh you know this is uh, i just want to play one clip here what's very remarkable about his particular run here is that he actually falls in the middle of the run here you can see him uh if you're watching this on youtube he actually falls and then he manages even after falling to still win first place and take home the trophy you know he's thinking about uh Thinking about uh, going into the Olympics, you know, this is a very inspiring story here. What do you think, Jacob? Yeah, I saw the video. Uh, it was kind of making the rounds on social media, and it was it was super impressive. I mean, I don't care if you're a Latter Day Saint or not. Like that's a that's an inspiring thing to watch someone fall and kind of like, oh, oh, that count that guy out, and then to have him come back and win it. Like everybody loves a good comeback story. Yeah, they certainly do. And, you know, it's got pictures of him crossing the finish line. And he um, says that it's, uh, you know, his faith really uh, helped him propel. He said, he, he, he said, uh, I want to get the quote here right. He said, I guess that the Lord was looking out for me and helped me prepare because, you know, the top couple of finishers here all finished within about two seconds of each other, which, you know, falling in an eight minute run, that's a that's a pretty serious uh, misstep there. But, you know, he persevered. He um, he took it down and he's preparing here to go to maybe the Olympics. He doesn't even know for sure if he's going to go back to BYU. Very inspiring uh, story, and it just um, shows to me that, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to, and also the fact that I need to get into better shape, just without question. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what, what, one thing on that as well, um, I, I when you see Latter-day Saint athletes who do well, or Latter-day Saints in any public role uh, excelling in a way that is admirable, it it is a way of sort of building the kingdom, because I think people can get this idea that Latter-day Saints are sort of these recluses that hide away in Utah and never like interact with the real world. And when Latter-day Saints go out into the world and, and demonstrate high levels of character, it, it reflects uh, well that we are people who want to be in the world, but not of the world. And I think that's very attractive. Yeah, without question. Now, uh, another article that uh, caught our eye here for this week was a judge awards $152 million to XFLDS members in lawsuit against Warren Jeffs. So the plaintiff's attorney calls this award highly symbolic, but says it sends a clear message about abuse. What's interesting about the um, you know absolutely horrific uh, Warren Jeffs tragedy 
is the fact that he is actually up for parole here and only um, it's only about 10 years from now. And what this particular lawsuit says is, you know, no matter if he does eventually get out of prison and only I think it's um, he's up for parole in 2038, I believe that it is, even if he does make it out of prison, that this judgment will stand against him and he will remain penniless for the rest of his life. And um, I, I, for one, am glad to see uh, that there will be some justice for these people if Warren Jeffs does come out. Because the last thing I think that anyone wants to see is if Warren Jeffs is paroled in 2038, if he goes back and takes over the FLDS church, which has, you know, is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and has the ability to control those assets. Again, the last thing that we would want to see is him um, living a comfortable life after the wake of destruction um, that he's incurred. And this particular lawsuit is going to basically prevent that. What are your, what are your thoughts on this one, uh, Jacob? Yeah, I think justice should be done uh, against a horrible abuser like him, um, as it should be. Um, I have absolutely zero sympathy for him or for anyone who engages in uh, in abusive behavior like that. Um, and in addition, um, I also I do say that we got to be careful that people don't leverage this to, uh, you know, do similar things to, because. Obviously, what he did is a is a you know horrible thing of 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 abuse. But if a person engages in you know nowadays abuse can be defined as so broadly that you know that the church, our church, or any church could be sued for some sort of abuse. Um, you know what I mean? We got to we do have also have to be careful of, of religious liberty. But there is a level to which obviously, like if you're in violation of just laws which are just laws like the ones that he violated uh, in, in the things that he did, that there need to be as harsh of consequences as, as we can think of in relation to those crimes. Well, it's interesting that you say that uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to see a wider application of this because we have seen a wider application of cases like this. For instance, uh, just in April, there was a lawsuit that happened in uh, Riverside, California, where this is a single case. This was not a class action case. This was a single case of abuse in which the, plaint uh, the, uh, the, the plaintiffs were awarded $2.3 billion for a single case of abuse. So yeah, we have seen, these are again, very symbolic type of uh, lawsuits that happen. Uh, is anyone going to be able to get $2.3 million for a single case of abuse? Probably not. Are they gonna be able to get $152 million out of Warren Jeffs? Probably not. But we're seeing these type of symbolic actions take place in the court and it's becoming a lot more frequently. Um, it seemed like you were thinking that was a bad idea. Yeah, well, we just got to we have to be careful to make sure that the parties accountable are held accountable. And there are there are definitely interests in the in the world to go after the church as the party responsible for these sorts of abuses. And we have to be very, very mindful that that people are to be held accountable for their sins and not to loop people into groups and hold groups of people accountable to where us as Latter-day Saints, because some Latter-day Saint or so-called Latter-day Saint goes off the rails and does something horrible that suddenly we all essentially get punished as a as a church and as, as as a people and so we gotta like we're in a we're in an age where uh the we are words are losing their meaning and abuse can be super broad and then you you hold groups accountable instead of individuals and so in this environment where on one hand i'm like yes warren jeffs needs to be punished for the things that he's done in his crimes at the same token, I wouldn't even want to punish every member of the FLDS church. I would want to punish Warren Jeffs um, because he's the one who actually committed the crime. And so within the framework of the law, we have to, we have to be very, very careful 
that we that we don't get into collective notions of justice. And instead, what we should do is what the American tradition, what the church holds, that individuals are accountable for their actions. Yeah, I you know one thing is the fact that since the value of Ensign Peak is now widely known that it's in excess of $100 billion, and even David Bednar, he didn't deny it in the National Press Club briefing last year when he was asked about it, and that doesn't include the church's real estate holdings. People now know how much the church is really worth, and it's worth you know a tremendous sum. So we, um, in my opinion, we're more likely to see these incredible, truly, ex I, I want to say exorbitant sums for some of these incredible abuse cases. That's not to say that you know somebody wasn't abused and they should deserve a, a recompense for it. But most likely this $2 billion judgment is gonna be reduced down to a more reasonable level. But you're gonna see, you know, it's it's not just about the individuals. They're gonna say you suffered individually, but then it's the punitive damages that are associated with these court cases. And now that the church's valuation is uh, well known, the punitive damages, you're gonna see them going higher and higher. Yep. And now you might understand why the church has an incentive to try and keep its financial holdings uh, maybe less publicly known. So that way you avoid becoming a target for every lawsuit, because the first thing you learn about lawsuits and lawyers is they look at how deep the pockets are of the person that they're trying to sue. If you don't have deep pockets, they don't sue you. If you do, they do. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the difference between the spotlight scandal with the Catholic Church is that the, the individual Catholic dioceses are generally incorporated on their own and they're worth a certain amount. So when you're suing the Catholic Church, you can't sue this Catholic Church in totality. You can only sue your individual diocese, whereas the church, it's not your stake is not worth anything. Your stake owns nothing. You can sue the church as a whole, as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, not your individual diocese. And the church is worth a lot more than any individual Catholic diocese. But this is not the, the biggest, uh, you know, speaking of the biggest paydays, the biggest Mormon lawsuit of all time is not the $152 million with LPLDS. It wasn't the $2 billion that we just saw in Riverside. It's actually $4.6 that happened last year where a Mexican cartel went down and uh, wiped out, unfortunately, this is a horrible killing here, nine women and children, uh, a Mormon offshoot community. Um, they sued the, the drug cartel and were awarded a whopping $4.6 billion. So yeah, we're, I mean, we're in the age of litigation and we've seen some truly massive payouts that have happened. You know, our next article here is the Moms for Liberty here. And this was very interesting. It was tweeted out here by the Deseret News here just a couple, uh, couple of days ago on July 7th, 2023. It says, who are the Moms of Liberty? And what are their goals? And the head of uh, the Moms for Liberty is Tiffany Justice, who says that the media coverage of her group hasn't been fair or accurate and that they should not be designated as an extremist group. Now, I know you read this article here. Um, wh what is your take on the Moms for Liberty and the church uh, and it appearing in the church, uh, Deseret News, in coverage? Well, I'm honestly, I feel like this group is being abused terribly. Like I, th there was a whole thing about them quoting Hitler uh, and there being this whole hullabaloo and their hate group because of that. And I looked at the actual quote and it was a quote from Adolf Hitler that just said, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. And it was obviously what they were doing is anyone who knows anything about the context of all of this is they're saying, look, the government is trying to own our children. And that was the same idea that, that, you know, Adolf had. And so they weren't quoting Hitler to like promote him. They were saying that, look, the government, just like Hitler did, these people are trying to take your children. They're trying to claim that the state has a greater ownership over your children than you do as individual parents. And so my thing is there's all these accusations of being a hate group and all this stuff like the Southern Poverty Law Center. And you know what? When I watch the Southern Poverty Law Center make these sorts of claims, all it does is discredit them because – you know, that's a that's a joke. Like, what are you talking about? What they haven't brought anything substantial to the table to validate these claims. You're just name calling people. That's what we do now. It's it's horrible. And I as I've looked into the group, I've I've 
you know, I don't know a ton about it, but what I've seen, I've very much agreed with. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm more looking like what's like, why is anyone have any problem with this, with this group? And every time I've seen anything they brought up, it's just distortion and lies. And it's just an obvious bias and agenda by joke organizations, in my opinion, like the Southern Poverty Law Center, which no one should even care what they think, because frankly, they're so full of it. And they're so unreliable in the groups that they call hate groups that you should, I don't know why anyone cares what they think. Yeah, I mean, this uh, Moms for Liberty, as I was reading the article, they got their start in Florida in 2019 um, with the fight against the uh, Florida COVID safety measures. And I did look up and I said, you know, uh, I don't want to base my opinions on any group on any one particular center, and even at the Southern Poverty Law Center. So I, I looked it up on thehill.com, which, by the way, thehill.com, they're right-leaning. They said six reasons that Moms for Liberty is an extremist organization. I looked it up on NPR, and it says Moms for Liberty is an extremist organization. So I got the right-leaning. I got the left-leaning. They all seem to be in agreement that this is an extremist organization, as well as the Southern Poverty Law Center. There seems to be a wide consensus about the uh, nature of this particular group. And um, I find that to be remarkable. You're wondering why. I haven't seen anything, and maybe they are. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe I just haven't done enough research. But that's the thing is we live in this age of making accusations without getting specific. So why specifically are they an extremist? Because today's extremist, it, it, it's, it's are these terms now that people use that like if you think that you're a man and a woman, uh, that there are only two genders, you're suddenly an extremist. So I, I, I always take all this with a grain of salt. But like I said, until I hear the specifics as to why, you know, I would – extremist doesn't mean anything to me because it all depends on who's calling you an extremist. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, so here's some of the groups. There's, I believe there's nine, 77 groups that the Southern Poverty Law Center says are either hate groups or extreme, extremist groups. The uh, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the National Vanguard, that's a neo-Nazi group. The uh, Euro group, which does uh, publicizes David Duke's group. Blood and Honor, which is another neo-Nazi organization. Aryan Nation is a white supremacist. Jewish Defense League is uh, anti-Jewish, the Brotherhood of the Klan. They're not, they're not, Jacob, they're not saying to some random citizen who thinks that there's only two genders does not make this list. This list is populated by people who are pretty bad, not just, there's not three million or, you know, groups in the other, 77. So if you're making this list, I don't, I don't know. I do trust the Southern Poverty well, Law Center. Obviously some, obviously, some of those groups are not only extremists, they're just abhorrent monster groups. But frankly, they're really, really small groups that don't have much power or sway at all. In any, you, know, you go into some trailer park in Kentucky, you can find some nutcases. My bigger thing is, is who has power? And also, this group that they're mentioning, the Moms for Liberty, okay, let's get specific. What have they done that's so extreme? Mm -hmm. I yeah, have you know, um, I, I just wonder, is this, do you think that this is the type of organization that Jesus was joined? And that's why I'm, the reason that I'm asking that is, is this an organization that the church should be giving a platform to? For instance, should the Deseret News run softball interviews with the founder of the Proud Boys or for the Anti-Defamation League? Should they run, because this is a pretty softball interview on it, should they be doing it for those type of hate groups to get their message out? Or should we not be doing that? What do you think? I, I don't presume that they're a hate group. I haven't heard anything about them that, that would make me think that. So I can't comment until someone shows me that these people have done something that is somehow so beyond the pale that we can't talk to them. Okay, now our next article is on cell phone data. So uh, a very interesting researcher, Devin Pope, he, he got a hold of 2.1 million cell phone logs. And he used that information to track where people were going because it has the GPS location on it, on where they're going on Sunday worship days. And he 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 published this onto Twitter here, which is really, really interesting. It's, it's in the process of being peer reviewed. But if we took a look at uh, religion in America in general, about 30 million people, 25 to 30 million people go to church on any given Sunday, and he can use the triangulation and the GPS to figure that out. 
And it, he also broke it down because he knows where the uh, locations of uh, uh, Protestants are. He knows where the location of Catholics are and whether, you know, there's about 5 million Catholics who go to church on Sunday. And obviously, very important for me, he also got the data for the Latter-day Saint, the Mormons. And this is really, really interesting because um, he, it tracks that uh, during uh, general conference times that obviously people are not going to church. So that, that's why it's so that's why it's so low, only maybe, uh, you know, very, very small amount. And Latter-day Saints, you know, only has a small peak on Christmas and Easter, which is what one would expect. But this is very interesting because it looks like on any given Sunday for about the last, uh, this is for the time frame of 2019 to 2020, about 1.4 million Latter-day Saints go to church in the United States on any given Sunday. Um, how do you feel about the accuracy uh, uh, of this, considering the fact that the, I believe the church boasts, I want to say 6.8 million members in the United States? Well, what do you think about this? It's this an interesting uh, take here. Yeah, so I actually did an analysis myself, just kind of off the cuff. It's nothing crazy scientific, but I researched what the total numbers were because you research Latter-day Saints, Protestants, Jehovah's Witness, Catholics, and Jews, and, and some other groups as well. But I just mainly focused on those. And what, what they found was, okay, what percentage of them are active on a weekly basis, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's different from the church's standard of activity. The church's standard of activity is, I think, once a month. Um, if you're attending at least once a month, then you're considered active in the church. Um, so this puts us at about 21% based on those numbers, yeah. um, mm -hmm. which to my understanding is roughly, I, I would say that feels about accurate. If you're going on a weekly basis, it'd be higher than that if you're just doing it on a monthly basis, obviously. Um, and then, but then you, but then now let's compare us to other groups. Uh, Protestants, are, so we're at 21%. Next, we're, that's the highest of the group, just so everyone knows. We, we came out the highest according to my data that I saw. LDS were 21%, Protestants were 16%, Jehovah's Witness were 11.5%, Catholics are 6%, and Jews are 2.4%. So our activity levels are actually much higher than, the, the title could read, Latter-day Saints are the most active religious group or large religious group in the country, uh, according to, to this data. So that's one way of looking at it. The other yeah. is saying, oh, my gosh, only one in every five Latter-day Saints are attending weekly worship services. It, to some, anyone who's been around the church long enough knows that there's, of course, there's high levels of inactivity in the church. There are many people who get baptized that don't ever actively participate in the faith. So you have a lot of that. Um, but I also would say that... Um, that kind of goes along with the Pareto distribution of, uh, you know, the 80-20 rule, as they say. 80% uh, of what happens in an organization happens by 20% of the people in it. So uh, that's another way of kind of looking at it. So these numbers don't surprise me so much. Um, and comparatively speaking, in a world where religion is is in decline throughout the country, to still have, uh, to, to, to be at the top of the heap of the people that are religiously active is, is I think, a, a compliment. Yeah, definitely. You know, and he also somebody uh, he tweeted out as far as because this is only just taking a look at any given Sunday. He says, well, what is the LDS activity rate in the United States as a general uh, as a whole? And he came up with this. He said uh, on any given Sunday, about one point four million Mormons or Latter Day Saints are go to church. But of course, some people are sick. Some people are on vacation. You know, some people some people are, are at home and they are very, very active. with get the sacrament at home. So he said, well, what is the true activity rate? Well, he says that it's about a 30 to 35 percent retention rate. And I think the LDS Church has ever claimed that retention rate um, ha has ever claimed that retention rate is much higher than that. In fact, I'm a bit surprised by how high it is. And quite frankly, I was a bit surprised overall at the retention rate and the activity rate. As you mentioned, um, I think it's a, a positive sign. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that one of the things that's going on in our age of social media is that people uh, 
we now know what everybody's doing. Back in the day when somebody went inactive, they just like, oh, well, they aren't coming to church anymore. You didn't see them. Now they're on Facebook and they find other ex-Mormons and they all, you know, commiserate together and create groups. And, and so it may seem like there's something new happening. I think to some degree there is. I mean, there, our growth rates have slowed. We are facing challenges. But I think we got to be careful that we don't, you know, these people out there, oh, the church is just hemorrhaging members. And it's like, I, I think that some of that is perception. Um, and whenever you look at the data, it does appear that obviously the church is facing its challenges in, in, a, in, a secular, in a secularizing society. But I don't think that the church is, um, you know, hemorrhaging like some people would make it out to be. And these stats seem to support that. What I would say is one more, more thing is that this tracks cell phone data. And because Latter-day Saints typically have larger families than Protestants and larger families than Jehovah's Witnesses, not all of those kids are going to have a cell phone, right? So if you're only tracking cell phone rate, the numbers could be slightly worse for Latter-day Saints when comparison to other religions because of the nature of the cell phone usage. Then on the other hand, some of the boomer, you know, Latter-day Saints tend to live a lot longer than other people, too. And your 80 and 90 year olds, they don't always bring their cell phones to church. So he actually said that it might be a wash. Obviously, this data isn't perfect. It's just cell phones. But uh, I think we gained a lot of valuable knowledge from it. I think you brought a very good take on it. Now, our next article here, this was in the news. And my, my, um, my banner is actually wrong on this because I said April to Spain starts a GoFundMe. And you corrected me that, no, she did not start a GoFundMe. But she is back in. I mean, she's in the spotlight. What's going on here, Jacob? Uh, so April to Spain, um, she, do I, should I go into talk a little bit about her story overall or, or just this latest developments? Can you sum it up in 30 seconds and then give yeah, us the sure. development? So, so April to Spain, uh, for pride month decided to put up a family proclamation in her yard as a way of her expressing her views on gender and sexuality, since everyone else was putting up their pride flags for expressing their views of gender and sexuality. And so there are people obviously who took, didn't like this very much. Apparently April has also been very active in, uh, she's noticed things in her um, local school district that her kids are being taught that had to do with gender ideology and stuff. And so well, she, she homeschools. Didn't... She homeschools. So... But she didn't originally. She switched okay. to homeschooling because okay. her children were uh, uh, exposed to some of the stuff and she basically lost faith in the local school district. So she's had uh, tension between herself and the local school district for quite some time. Um, so she pulled her kids out of the school district and she has continued to kind of be a public advocate for parents who don't want this kind of stuff in schools. And it drew the ire of the PTA president and others. And uh, apparently, according to the story, the PTA president sent multiple people to place pride flags in her front yeah. yard which yeah. was like, what? So then, and then now she basically called her out and they got into this online spat. And what essentially has happened is now, apparently, according to the story, the PTA president who was already threatening, like, hey, we're going to sue you, is now trying to threaten and sue April um, for basically standing up for herself online, so far as I can tell. And I haven't seen anything illegal that April has done. I'm no expert on on these sorts of things, but so far as I can tell, she hasn't done anything that I would convict her on. No. Um, and so uh -huh. she's now raising funds uh, to uh, to help fight this legal battle where she's being uh, sued for I think it's stalking or defamation or something like that. Yeah. The, the, the thing about it, I just want to say one thing. The last I heard, there's only a threat of a lawsuit. An actual lawsuit has not been filed, to my knowledge. And I've been trying to watch this space as carefully as I can. So I don't know. It's one thing to raise funds for defending a lawsuit. It's another thing to raise money for the threat of a lawsuit, because we know live in a pretty litigious society and threats of lawsuits are a dime a dozen, especially to public figures. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
and I'd have to, I'd encourage people to go and to, to look at April Dispens. It, it, it's on what's called givesendgo.com yeah. slash mm-hmm. April wild with an E on the end to Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. This is her, uh, her full explanation of what's going on here. Um, and she does say that any money not used will be transparently donated to charity. So she's basically right. said, I'm putting together a legal defense fund. Um, I don't know. I'd have to review it if there actually has been legal action filed. I believe there was something, but um, yeah. So if she's going to be donating this money, uh, you know, she that's, basically is trying to protect herself. That, that's what that's what I'm wondering. Okay, so you said you need the money for the legal defense, and th- that I understand. But then if you're donating the money to charity, then you're just donating the money to April, who's going to donate it to charity. Why don't we just donate to charity and eliminate the middleman? That's what I don't understand. In my mind, if I don't think there's anything wrong with it. If she is legitimately being uh, filed, it says I think there's an injunction that was filed against her or something like that. I, nope, that's nope. the thing is I'm and 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 if it says it says in her thing it says now the PTA president is attempting to silence me again by filing a civil stalking injunction against me. Yes, and that civil stalking injunction that was leaked and now I don't. This is all just a rumor. I don't have this for certainty, but the stalking injunction was granted as April was the stalker and not the PTA president. It was reversed from what we seem to be told. Now it's only from leaks, but um, yeah, I mean, so- Well, it, April, it, I, so far as I know, April had said that th- that it was filed against her as though April were the stalker. Yeah, and then it was granted, the judge granted the injunction, the stalking injunction, which says that there's gonna be no contact. So she was the stalker, not the other way around. Yeah, according according to the, the the judgment of the judge, but I haven't right. seen anything that April has done except for defend herself against people that have been putting pride flags in her yard and like calling her names and harassing her family. And I'm sure it goes both ways. The supporters of April are gonna go and say terrible things and whatever. But and, and fine, if y'all need to break it up and calm down, and that's what the judge wants to do. Like fine. But if there is something legal that's going to happen here beyond just this injunction, and with that injunction being filed against her if there are costs associated with that i absolutely i would i would encourage people to support april to actually donate to her um because i think what's happening to her is totally wrong and uh and and she's not so far as i've seen she's not done anything wrong um she's very adamant in her opinions about things but to have legal action taken against her i think is pretty insane and as someone who has had sort of frivolous legal threats and things against me. Uh, if you're an ordinary person, I'll tell you that is terrifying when you have someone with deep pockets saying, I'm going to make your life miserable. And by the way, they can do it. You can literally do nothing wrong in this country and you can have someone financially wreck you if they're willing to spend some money on their end just to do that to you. So in this case, I haven't seen her do anything wrong. And if she's saying that she's going to donate this money and you trust her and you support her cause, then go ahead and donate it to her. And uh, and, and I would I would be supportive of that. I don't have any problem with it. Yeah, this isn't the only LGBTQ uh, item that has appeared in the news. And we do have an update here because we covered this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, ben Shalati as, uh, you know, Charlie the Cougar, Charlie Bird and Ryan, um, they've gotten engaged here. And Ben Shalati uh, released a blog post uh, that he gave his thoughts on it. And uh, what did he say, Jacob? Well, my issue with what's going on here is is basically Ben is talking about uh, Charlie and his now fiance. Uh, and, and about attending their wedding, okay, and kind of what he feels about their decision. Um, he says that basically, and I'll read some of it. Um, he says he knows how much they love each other, how much they love the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how hard they are working to live the best life they can, given their incredibly difficult circumstances. The more, I, uh, and he says, the more I feel confident in them and their decisions. So he's 
he's not in any way pushing back against their decision to 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 get into a, a same-sex uh, marriage and sexual relationship. He says he can. He says I can honor, respect, and support them, even if my choices look different. So uh, here's my thing. I I have a like I have a gay brother, and if my gay brother were to get married, I actually would attend the wedding. Um, but I would not write an article like this saying that you know I I honor it, I respect it, I support it as as though I support this union in full in any way. I'd have to make a very clear distinction uh, that 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 even if I were to attend and be supportive and show love for my brother, that I do not consider that union a marriage because marriage is defined by God as the union between a man and a woman. And to have someone who is a BYU, uh, I think professor, I believe he worked in the honor code office in the past, um, writing and a published Deseret book author who who gives courses on how to be an ally to have him essentially say, look, like, yay for this. It's by our doctrine and by our teachings. This is not a marriage. A marriage is the union of a man and a woman. And so for him to basically just in this article, just give the full big hug to it without mentioning anything about why this isn't right. It creates confusion in the church is what it does. And we are a confused people. <laughs> we know we need to show love to our gay brothers and sisters. Everyone pretty much that isn't crazy can agree on that. But what does that look like? What does that translate into? And this, in my mind, just looks like tacit approval of it. Um, if anything, it puts the church's policies as kind of like, well, you know, because I'm a member of the church, I got to kind of be like, you know, I'm not going to make the same decision as them. But, you know, this is great. This is wonderful. I honor it. You know, I got he said I got my tuxedo already. And, uh, you know. He, he's I'm, I'm just happy for them. This is wonderful. You know, and it just it gives the wrong vibe. It doesn't have enough clarification. It gives the love, which I'm 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 a favor of, like I said, but it doesn't give the law. And you have to have both because otherwise we we essentially imply that the law doesn't matter or that we don't believe it. So are you saying that you would like to see a membership council today immediately? Um, For uh, Charlie? Yeah. I think that, yes, I think if you are entering into a gay sexual relationship, that at the very least, the leaders of that person should talk with them and counsel them against moving into a same-sex relationship. And to, um, and then if not, that their, their records should be removed from the, uh, from the records of the church. You can't have Latter-day Saints that are, that are, that are gay married, um, in, in my opinion. Now, now, I do want to say this, though. All, obviously, that judgment call is left up to local leaders. But this is where there's a problem. I've been on membership councils multiple times during my service in the church. I've been in bishoprics. I was a branch president uh, during my mission. I, I, I've been around this kind of stuff. And the thing is, I've been on multiple of these for people who are have entered into same-sex or, or who have had same-sex relations uh, in one way or another, in one instance or another. And the question is, is what do we tell those people? Do we now tell them that, oh, well, if you're a big enough name, if you're a really big name, very popular Cosmo the Cougar type that has a book in Deseret Book, you don't have to worry about membership counselors anymore. You can do whatever you want because, you know, that the special people in the church, they get to do what they want. But the rest of you, you have to face the consequences. Because if I was in a membership council with someone who had broken the law of chastity by engaging in homosexual relationships, what would I say to them if they looked at me and said, why am I having a why am I here in this membership council? And while people like Charlie Bird are not. If we're not consistent in the way that we follow the policies of the church, then it ends up being like some people get special treatment. And that's a big problem. 
Well, I'll just say one thing. Uh, Charlie's books are not in Deseret Book. They mutually agreed to pull them out of Deseret Book a few weeks ago. And but they were, to, they were in yeah. Deseret Book, though. Sure. Yeah, they were in Deseret Book, but they aren't they aren't anymore. But you, you talked about homosexual behavior. But even according to the church's handbook, um, homosexual behavior is not grounds for an immediate membership council. There are 11 points in which uh, which are. And that's not one of them. Uh, the, the ones that require require a membership council is murder, rape, sexual assault, conviction, child or youth abuse, abuse of a spouse or another adult, predatory behavior, incest, child pornography, plural, mar plural marriage, serious sin while holding a prominent church position and most felony convictions. So in your hypothetical example of the one person who said, why am I having a required membership? Council, I would say um, follow the handbook because it doesn't say homosexual behavior requires membership council. Well, I would I would maybe go back one to that to that list if you can pull it back up real quick. Um, sure. One of them is uh, serious sins um, while holding a prominent church position. While which holding they, a prominent which Charlie Burt which, which Charlie Burt does not hold nor I would, either. I would well first of well, well there's two things. These are the ones that require a membership sure. council. Like there mm -hmm. is no option of if it were to need to be be held. Um, but a serious sin, well, well, first of all, would do we agree that engaging in a homosexual acts is indeed a uh, a serious sin? Well, I just well, according to the church handbook, it says serious sin while holding a prominent church position. Charlie Bird, as Cosmo the Cougar, that's not an ordained position. He doesn't hold and, a prominent and, church and, position. And maybe and so, but if, if someone if someone in the church, regardless, I would say that that a person who is engaging in homosexual acts publicly as a prominently well-known Latter-day Saint, you That's de facto don't says. hold an ordained position, but I would consider that something that, that would be a factor to consider. Now, keep in mind what you had pointed out in the handbook are the, the cases where it requires a membership council, okay? So my thing is, is then if we were to look at the other ones where it's not required, but that it may be necessary. Do we have that, that list to look yeah, at? Yeah, yeah, the other, the, you know, there is other aspects that says 32.6.2.5 uh, that says that there's some uh, aspects where a membership council may be necessary. And so membership council may be necessary for attempted murder, sexual abuse, adultery, fornication, cohabitation, civil unions, and same-sex marriage. So in those cases, yes, it may be necessary and it's up to the discretion of the state president. Yeah, and it is at the discretion of the state president. So the question is, is why why is it that some some members are going to have this be given and others not? And especially when you're, I, I'm going to assume he's Temple endowed. I'm not not sure. But if you have a obviously if you have someone who hasn't been active in the church for 25 years, they live, you know, and and they're not they're not in any way even active in the church. Do you need to have a membership council because you found out through the grapevine that they that they engage in same sex relationship? That may be a different scenario. But if you have someone who has is well known, who is known as a Latter-day Saint, who is out there active online with a large following, who has members of the uh, of the young women's presidency, uh, you know, interacting with him, and then this person is now engaged in a homosexual same-sex marriage. That that seems like a different situation to me. That seems like one that that it's more serious here, and that we need to uh, that th that in my opinion would. Now it's left up to the state president. I'm not necessarily I'm not here to challenge the specifics of the state president. But the question is, we have to have some guidelines under which you would think that a, that that this is reasonable to to have this sort of thing. And in my judgment, we need to make sure that people know that homosexual relationships are seriously sinful, and that. You can't participate in the church without any sort of restrictions if you're out engaging in homosexual behavior, uh, whether you call it a marriage or not. 
It's simply not something that can be allowed in the church because it will normalize the behavior to where this will eventually be something that we don't consider sinful. And that's really what's at the root of this. That's what I try to point out with Jim Bennett. People don't think homosexual behavior is seriously sinful. They just don't. And so you'll have, and maybe that state president thinks that. He just thinks it isn't a big deal. And is that, is it the case? I think that violates the scriptures. It violates what our prophets have taught. It violates our doctrine of the family. And we have to make sure that when people, public figures in the church are flaunting this right in front of everyone's faces, that the church puts down a foot to avoid confusion. Because otherwise everyone will sit there and not know what the church really stands. And then there are those in the church that think, don't worry, give it 20 years, the church is going to change its policies and, and, and doctrines. Yeah, for our listeners out there, we're on uh, YouTube. If you could let us know your thoughts on uh, Charlie Burke and his upcoming marriage, uh, we'd be very, very grateful for that. While you're at it, drop us a like, drop us a subscription. We'd uh, be very grateful for that, too. We just got a couple last articles to get through this week here. You brought this one up as well for us, uh, uh, Jacob, and it's uh, the Book of Mormon uh, and Elder Corbett, who's really, in my opinion, one of the rising stars of the church here. He was just, if you want to say, promoted in the last general conference. I, that's a simple term. I know some people don't like it, but he, <laughs> said, he went to the Better Angels Conference here, and he talks about how the Book of Mormon warns against division at uh, the Braver, Braver Angels Conference. And uh, why did you find this uh, a good article to uh, discuss this week here, Jacob? Well, because um, I believe in the message that President Nelson taught about unity in the church. Um, and, I and I think that these sorts of things of outreach to try and engage with those who are willing to try and have conversations and find unity, I think these are good things. However, I also want to offer a critique to, the, um, to it. So, um, let me just read something from the article. It says Elder Corbett, um, I'll just read directly from it. It says Elder Corbett cited addresses from President Oaks and President Eyring of the church's first presidency. The former encouraged to, quote, moderate and unify on contested issues, and the latter emphasized a great day of unity is coming. And Elder Corbett in, this, in his, his speech at this conference says, let us imagine the consequences of not heeding today's calls or of not earnestly pursuing the inspired objective of this uh, convention. Elder Corbett concluded, as we lead with courage and boldness while exemplifying kindness and hope for the soul of America, we can together fix the eye, um, sorry, the eye of the nation uh, on, uh, fix the eye of the nation on an inspired vision of our future as a people and as a more perfect union. Love this. However, there's something missing in all of this conversation. Unity is only possible when there is something that people unite around. And that's what we need to discuss. And that's what we need to basically, like, that's the whole thing. What are we uniting around? Because if we don't have something that we unite around, then there will be nothing to unite us. And the real question is, is in the broader country, like, is there, uh, you know, what, what is it that unites all Americans? Like, genuinely. Um, and I feel like those things are becoming smaller and smaller. But even within the church, right? Like, again, that, like we were talking about in that last article, if we don't stand for something, if we don't have like, okay, homosexual behavior is, is wrong and immoral, then what do we believe, right? And if you have, if you have a house that's divided with different groups and different beliefs, you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to have division. You're going to have conflict. The way to resolve the conflict is with truth and that everyone needs to embrace the truth because you can't have people who all have these different beliefs hold together as a coherent people, either within the United States or within, uh, or within the church, without having some sort of a greater unifying principle that we all unite around. Yeah, um, 
Let, let me ask you a pointed question then. Does your Twitter profile and YouTube uh, personality, do they encourage unity or do they breed division? They encourage unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ himself knew that he would bring division. The truth does tend to divide people. But the thing is, is he said, those who have here, let him hear. He basically was saying, look, the people who want the truth, they'll come on board with what I'm saying. If we try and just placate what everyone else says without trying to actually speak the truth, we will not get unity. Unity can only be found in the truth. And that also means that we have to combat lies. Unity, you don't just, like, this is the thing I can't stand. Like, there's sort of this idea that, like, just say unity. Just, like, be really nice to people and everyone will come together. No. You come together when you actually, you can actually get people who don't like each other to come together when they're united around some common purpose or goal. Just saying unity doesn't do anything. It's when we actually have some unifying principles. And for Latter-day Saints, who are my target audience, I call them to be united to the teachings and principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that pisses a lot of people off because a lot of people hate those principles. And Jesus Christ was the same way. Jesus did not get crucified because he was being too nice. He got crucified because he spoke the truth. And ultimately, I'm, I, my goal is to be hard on ideas and soft on people. I don't tolerate ideas that are lies, that are falsehoods, and I'll speak out against them. Yeah, I do want to just address one point where he talks about how the Book of Mormon warns against division. And I was thinking about that this week since you said that this was an important uh, article for you. And it just really reminds me of uh, Second Nephi, in Second Nephi, I think it's chapter 25, where we had the uh, Nephites and the Lamanites who separated themselves at that time based upon ideology and uh, practices that the Book of Mormon tells us about. And then God, uh, according to the Book of Mormon, God cemented the division in between these two groups of people by turning one of the skins dark so that they would be loathsome towards each other. That seems like a significant step away from unifying people is to cement a skin change so that they would be loathsome towards each other. Does not the Book of Mormon, is that not an argument against the Book of Mormon's call for unity? The call for unity is unity around what? The Book of Mormon doesn't say just unity for the sake of unity. Jesus didn't say unity for the sake of unity. Jesus talks about the, the, the goats and the sheep. You're either for me or you're against me. It's all over the scriptures. This is a modern invention of our culture to, to have this weird idea that, that there's no division between people. The question is, is who's on the Lord's side? That's the division. It's the division between truth and falsehood, light and dark. And we invite everyone to come and be united in Christ. And that's the, the Book of Mormon message. And when Zion is achieved to the degree that it was in 4th Nephi, in the Book of Mormon, read it. It talks all about their love and unity in Christ. What happens is because they're united around Christ, unity emerges. But if you don't have Christ, you just have warring factions. Unless you have a unifying principle that everyone is united to, then what holds us together? Yeah, um, we're on Instagram, by the way, for the Mormon News Roundup. If you want to find us on Instagram, let us know your thoughts. Is the Book of Mormon, does it, um, does it warn against division? Um, let us know your thoughts on Instagram. We'd be very great, grateful for a comment. We've got two last articles to get through. And we, as usual, we have saved the uh, best for uh, last here, these last two. And I find this to be very remarkable here. And uh, the, the, this is the article here that's written from theconversation.com. And it says, Mormon leaders whose church is often associated with the grand old party push back against one party politics. So the top uh, leaders of the church uh, dropped a bombshell in June 2023 by telling the, their flock to vote for Democrats. Is that is that true, Jacob? 
<laughs> I read this article and I couldn't help but look. It, it was definitely read behind the between the lines kind of take by a particular author. I found the 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 church has always encouraged its members to vote their conscience and to you know they took this article and frankly are making a mountain out of a molehill where the where the church basically said hey y'all get out and vote the church doesn't have any political endorsements make sure you look over your party and all that kind of, or you know don't just march straight party ticket like really look at right. the issues all that kind yeah. of stuff and so they interpret it as that and that's just so we know that's kind of i don't think that's really controversial in the church's history i think the church has always kind of had that more or less position the church has never endorsed a political party in particular and rightfully so in my opinion <clears throat> but but so so this article I felt like was misguided because the author basically says like, oh, yeah, they're just dog whistling, telling them to like vote Democrat now, now that they're they just happen to be reminding people to like think about which, you know, choose wisely who you're choosing, which was essentially like what what the, the essence of their message was. It wasn't anything. Yeah. Let me read this to you. Let me read from this uh, article. It says merely voting a straight ticket or voting based on tradition without careful study of candidates and their positions on important issues is a threat to our democracy and inconsistent with revealed standards. The church's top three authorities wrote referring to Latter-day Saint scriptures. So there seems to be, I, I, if I'm going to read between the lines here, Jacob, this seems like a not so veiled shot at Donald Trump. Am I just way out of line or? I don't think you know what I think. I think the church leaders have definitely have issues with certain policies of Donald Trump. I also think they probably have policies of Donald Trump that they strongly support. And I think that that is yeah. probably and I think that most people are that way. Um, and so whether it's directed straight at Donald Trump or whether it is, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of reading between the lines here. And I think what the church is saying is what it's always taught is be wise in who you're choosing. There's more than just the presidential election at hand. And we need to make sure that we are being wise about things that are going on in our government. Um, but to say that the church is like and its leaders are all big time anti-Trump 100 percent would be crazy. On the other hand, I think they are rightly concerned about Trump's moral character. And I think they are rightly concerned because that, you know, that is important in our leaders. But I also think that they they are very, very pleased with many of his policies. In fact, you have you have them with Donald Trump meeting with them at uh, Welfare Square. You know, so it's it's True. not I think we got to be very, very careful before we start saying the church is one way or another. I think the church tries to stay out of uh, the political realm for pragmatic reasons. Well, just remember, the church did release an editorial in the Deseret News in 2016 that called for Trump to pull out of the race. And I know that's an, only an editorial, but still, it did it did appear in the Deseret News. And of course, the church, it needs to maintain tax exempt status. So therefore, it cannot directly endorse candidates or political parties in gender, other, uh, in general. Otherwise, it's going to, it could potentially lose its tax exempt status as the church and Enzyme Peak Advisors as a 5013C. I just want to make one last note before I get your final takeaway on this, Jacob, and that's that we didn't see these kind of warnings from the first presidency against one party politics back when Mitt Romney was running for president in 2008 and 2012. So I find the timing of this particular, uh, I find it a little bit remarkable that uh, now we're seeing the warnings. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just reading things in the tea leaves. I don't know. So I think that back in uh, when Mitt Romney was running, for instance, that the church was in a, the, the political landscape was totally different at that time. Our country is more divided now than maybe it ever has been uh, with the exception of the civil war. And so when you're dealing with that level of political division uh, and social division, I think the church is rightly commenting now when things are the way that they are. I don't think it's some necessary, some big plot, although I'm sure the church was, you know, 
would have li- would have seen having Mitt Romney in the White House as, as being an ally for the church. And I think with with somebody like Donald Trump, I think they have very much more mixed feelings. Although I would say, if the church, <laughs> you know, when it comes to things like abortion and stuff, and they look at the uh, at, at the Democrats and 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 uh, people like Joe Biden, uh, I think that there's going to be even more concerns on matters that I think, in my opinion, are far more important, uh, especially on a moral level. So. I, I think that the church doesn't have some candidate that they are endorsing. The church is politically neutral, but I do think the church does want for its members in this current climate to try and reduce the divisions as much as they can and try to um, be wise in who they vote for because the stakes are very high right now in, in, the, in the powder keg of our society. That's, that's very, really good thoughts. And that does take us to our featured news article. We want to spend a few minutes on this featured news article, which I personally found to be the most important news article of the week. And perhaps this is where we might find our widest uh, level of disagreement. We shall see. Now, uh, <laughs> this is from the Sydney Morning Herald here, and this was released on July 10th, 2023. And for those of you who are not familiar, the Sydney Morning Herald is basically the New York Times of Australia. It's the most reputable news uh, outlet, and it does investigative journalism. The title of the article is Mormons Walk Away from Major Multinational, Multinational tax evasion scheme. I just want to read this first uh, sentence here and uh, get your initial takes on this because we're going to read a couple of passages from this and uh, get your thoughts here, Jacob. The Mormon church is significantly reducing its use of a controversial shell company after an investigation revealed that it had engaged in alleged serious tax evasion in Australia. What's your initial thoughts on this uh, so far? My initial thoughts is I hope the church does whatever it can to reduce its tax exposure and any sort of tax liability for itself or its members. Okay. You know, what, what I think is important for me to note is that, and I didn't realize it until I read this article, is that the Ensign Peak shell companies, the 13 shell companies, that's not the only shell companies that the church utilizes. Because yeah. LDS, Charities, LDS Charities Australia was also a shell company. And I do wonder what other shell company that the church uh, currently operates. And this, this uh, Sydney Morning Herald article for me basically confirmed what the widows might leak to this information about a week and a half ago. And they reported on this, and that's only through leaks. And now it's been followed up by more serious journalism. And what the widows might report said is that the seriously reducing is an interesting term here, because according to the widows might report, the church basically stopped the controversial tax scheme altogether when the Sydney Morning Herald last year um, blew the, I don't say blew the whistle, but opened the door or shined the light on the LDS Charities Australia's controversial tax practices. Yeah, well, anyone who's dealt with tax uh, strategies, first of all, you're always trying to reduce your tax exposure or burden. Okay, and so the church is going to try, if it has any sort of tax burdens, uh, it it needs to try and reduce its risk that the government is going to reach its hands into your uh, tithing donations and take money from that to go and fund wars and abortion and all other kinds of things. So. What, what I would say, though, is um, I guess in Australia, if I'm not mistaken, in Australia, though, tithing donations are not tax exempt or something like that. Is that is that correct? Charitable. That, that's a very important point here. Charitable donations to churches in Australia are not inherently tax deductible like they are in the United States. You have to prove that your church or your, engages in a substantial charitable um, outlay. So that's why the church set up LDS Charities Australia. And we, we, the Australian states are not paying tithing directly to the church. They pay it to LDS Charities Australia because churches are not inherently uh, tax deductible donations. So they're trying to get members to have the tax donations and also the church to enjoy them as well by using the shell company. That, I yeah, hope that answers the question. And, and, frankly, and frankly, my take on that is, is good on the church. Because frankly, I, I'm a big and, – and if the church – the church's relationship to government, as I see it, is pragmatic, Okay. Because the bigger question here is, should the should the government be able to go in and take money from the church 
uh, at all. Like, is it any of the government's business? The money that you are exchanging between you and the church isn't isn't the government's business. It's it's for the church, and so that's that's where philosophically, I just at the very ground level, I am opposed to any government in any way interfering whatsoever in what I decide to give to my church. Yeah, the government is not interfering. You can give as much money as you want to the church. The question is whether that counts as a tax donation. So, the, I mean, the government's, the whole idea of a tax donation is the fact that you're giving money to the church and that's offsetting what the, what the government already has to do. So we're not talking about interference. We're just talking about, is it a tax deductible donation or not? So, I mean, yeah, if I, the idea is if I start a church in Australia where I'm the only participant, all of the money goes directly into my car and into my house and has no charitable outlook, the Australian government would take a dim view of that, and that would not count for tax deductible. Uh, it would not be a tax deductible donation. So, I mean, people can donate as much as they want to me. Uh, it just wouldn't count for a tax donation. So there's no interference. I just want to make sure that that point is clear. Yeah, now, the next but, uh, but, but the idea is that it does discourage, well, regardless of the way that they, <laughs> what happens when you do that? is that the because there's an assumption there that the church is not actually a charitable organization okay when the church absolutely is so the members are doing nothing wrong if anyone is wrong it is the government of australia who is out there saying that the church is not a quote-unquote charitable organization and from the very start i mean you're also dealing with someone who, who looks at this and says i think all of this is wrong because the government's basis for taxation with these things is wrong in principle, in the way that they're doing this. If a person is not, if, if, you, if I have income that I give to a charitable organization that I'm not using for myself, I should not be taxed on that income. I never realized any benefit out of that income per se, because I'm giving it to the church. I'm giving it to someone else, not to myself, right? And so just on that level, that's the way the law should be. What is the law in Australia? Okay, maybe it's maybe you're right. Maybe you're 100 percent right. Maybe the church is like violating the law. But I'm not looking at this from the perspective of what is the law. I'm looking at it from the perspective of what is just. And it's unjust for the government to uh, I think it's unjust for the government to treat in as income money that you never realized a gain on that you never that you didn't actually get to have for yourself to go spend on your house and your movies or whatever the heck you're doing with your money. And so. Just philosophically, from the start, I, I just have a problem with with that. I, I do have a question. So if I just take my check, if I get my monthly check and I just take it down to the Ford dealership and I buy a truck, then the government should have no basis on taxing me for the income because I bought a truck. Is that no? Correct? That, because you you ultimately are the one who's who is. It's your truck, right? You own sure. the truck when you're done with it. Yeah. yeah. Then 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 you do you do uh, that is a personal gain and therefore it can be income. But you have to remember also I'm against income tax. So this is kind of <laughs> you go way down the down the road. Basically the only tax I think that is just is a use tax. Uh, that's about the only tax that I can think is just. And I only believe that taxes are legitimately morally used in certain ways. So I'm pretty against taxation and the church's relationship I think to Caesar as I see it is the same as mine. We will. We'll, we'll be pragmatic, and if Caesar comes and wants our money, we'll do it, but we're trying our best not to empower Caesar. We'd rather empower the kingdom of God. Yeah, let me read another uh, section from this uh, particular article. It says, in Australia, the church has ensured that donations and tithing, neither of which are tax deductible, are routed through a charitable trust to gain 100% tax deductibility. So that really gets back to the point that you said that in Australia, churches are not inherent, that their donations, that's different from the United States, are not inherently tax deductible. You have to um, you have to prove that you're using those donations 
in Australia in order for your organization to gain the tax exempt status. And that's what the church did uh, starting when that law was passed back in 2012. The church formed immediately the LDS Charities Australia, which is what the saints were paying directly into. And what this article points out is that, that uh, LDS Charities Australia has no paid staff um, and it received uh, $90 million in donations in 2021. And then after the uh, after this article uh, went in the Sydney Morning Herald last April, those donations fell off a cliff as soon as it um, as soon basically as soon as it came to light. And what this article basically confirms is that the church was um, funneling money from church headquarters into LDS Charities Australia to gain tax uh, benefits from the Utah side and then funneling it back out from back to church headers to gain tax, uh, basically to like, I don't want to say double dip, that's not the right term, but to gain the maximum amount of tax blessings as possible. And as soon as that was brought to light, the church immediately stopped doing the practice. And that's why there's a massive tort that was filed by all the Australian saints saying that we paid into LDS charities, assuming that it was a charity and that it was engaged in charitable practices. It has demonstrably not engaged in charitable practices. And that's where the rub is. Okay, so I would say when you pay your tithing to the church, if you actually have paid your tithes, you've given up all rights to that money 110%. Where the church decides to funnel that money for its own tax strategies or within its stewardship to do whatever it needs to to grow the tax, or uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the tithing base of the church, that's on the leaders to make that call, the ones who have the keys over that. If you're paying your tithing and then you're upset with the way that the church is managing those funds, you never tithed in the first place because you are making an offering to God. OK, when I they could take my money into a back room and they could burn it for all I care. And I would show up next month with 10 percent to give. OK, I mean, they literally burned the first links of the flock in ancient Israel. Tithing is about giving up your rights to the money. In my mind, tithing is about saying to the Lord, you and your kingdom are more valuable to me than this money. Take it and do with it whatever you will. So any saint who's like, well, I thought this was all going to be given out to, you know, handed out in bags of cash to people on the street. And that isn't what happened or in some other, you know, charitable way that I arbitrarily define as charitable. Like you're wrong as a member if that's your attitude. OK, so that's just just straight up. And then the other one is the um, is that the state here is the, the government is the one who's arbitrarily deciding that the church is not a charity and that what they're doing isn't charitable enough or it's being sh right. funneled to other countries or whatever. And in my mind, it's like, well, I'm not following you. I follow the prophets of God. And if they think that it's a better idea that these funds should be used in another country, that's fine. And if you want to tax people accordingly, uh, you know, if uh, that's your prerogative as a government, but I'm going to think it's unjust because I think whatever funds you give to the church uh, should be uh totally tax exempt and that when members give it to the church, the church should be able to do whatever they want with it. And all of this issue and controversy is being created because of the arbitrary will of the government and the people in power and those bureaucrats. And I don't have a lot of faith in them, but I have a lot more faith with Russell M. Nelson and the Quorum of the Twelve and the way that they manage finances versus uh, Caesar. Yeah, just remember that these saints are not giving money to the church. If you give a donation, you are giving it to LDS Charities Australia. You're not giving money to the church. You're giving money to a shell company. So that's the difference. You said you give it to the church, they can burn it on fire. They were giving it to LDS Charities Australia with the purpose of that being used for humanitarian purposes. You don't have, in, in the United States, you have goodwill offerings with your donations. It says specifically on the bottom, and in fact, they updated about six months ago that the church has no obligation whatsoever to utilize your donation in any manner. All those boxes that you check, that means nothing. But 
That's the difference in Australia. You're not giving money to the church. You're giving it to LDS Charities Australia. And that is specifically by law says that you have to be doing charitable work in Australia as the vast majority of the income. The church was bringing in $100 million a year and they were using almost none of it to charity. That's the difference here between the were these, So these weren't tithes that were given by the members then? The, so, they were so, dona they donations. Donations, tithing, donations, same thing. Well, no, I, no, but, no, I thought we were making a distinction between tithing and goodwill donations to a charity because what was this money that was being donated was this money that was being given to lds charities or were the members giving their 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 were they filling out the little tithing slip putting tithing on it giving it to the bishop and then the bishop was then basically instructed to donate those funds or, or whoever is in charge of the funds management was instructed to transfer those funds not to church headquarters in salt lake but to the lds charities in in uh in Australia. I'm not sure how that all worked. Yeah, your, your donation goes straight to LDS Charities Australia. You do not pay donations. You do not pay tithing to the church in Australia for the last nine years. You give it to this organization. And that's what uh, Simon Southerton said, what the issue is. He says, one has to hope that this signals the beginning of Australian regulatory authorities taking action in respect to the $40 million work that the church has been engaged in. So what this allegation says is that the church, because they were not using the LDS Charities Australia in any significant way for humanitarian donations, that they benefited from 10 years of tax uh, of tax forgiveness, approximately $400 million worth of tax forgiveness that they should not have been um, enabled to use because LDS Charities Australia does not constitute or qualify as a tax exempt organization. So it's, it's not about burning tithing in the back room. Essentially, the, the class action says that you're, you were taking advantage of the government and deceiving the government for the tune of $400 million worth of tax advantages that you were not authorized to have. That's the issue. So the issue was that it wasn't being used for charitable purposes. Well, it was being used for charitable purposes, and that's what the article says. It says that uh, the church in Australia was using 0.3% of LDS Charities Australia. I got it from the article. 0.3% of LDS Charities donations in Australia went towards humanitarian purposes, which really tracks for what we've seen globally with the church, about that percentage oh, rate of so, around 1%. Yeah, but, but what does the money that the church uses go into if not charitable purposes? Uh, well, the charitable purposes have to be used in the country of Australia. So the money could be sent back to the United States or back to any other place that the church has. The whole purpose of the uh, Australian tax law is that you get a tax donation because you're using your 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 services in the country of Australia. That has so been do you think do you think happened. do you think though that it's just for a government to say if you don't you if you give charity to people in other countries we're going to tax you we're going to force you to only use give charity to people in our country. Um, I mean. Really, every government has the right to set their own laws, and governments are incentivized. Yeah, but that my question is: Is it just? Is that right? For for Australia, for Australia, the Australian government to subsidize um, some uh, charitable out, uh, outlook in Ghana, and for let's say that a charity took a lot of donations in Australia and had a massive outlook in Ghana, and it affected no Australians whatsoever, but they're reaping tens of or hundreds of millions of dollars in tax um, in tax deductions for that. I would say that most governments would have an issue with that. I, I personally, I, I can see where their argument is coming from. Yeah, I mean, I the purpose, but, but that's yeah. because a government has a priority to place its own citizens over sure. the needs of other people in other lands. Absolutely. We in the gospel don't have that. And right. in fact, I would think that we should encourage governments to allow people to donate to whatever charities they want to throughout the world, because we don't just care about our citizens. We care about the citizens in other countries as well. And so for them to punish people for donating to other charities, we have to remember this. This is where it all comes down to in my mind. 
Every dollar that the church uses is for humanitarian aid. The building of temples is a form of humanitarian aid if you really believe that temples and temple covenants do good for humanity. In fact, I would argue that the greatest poverty program in the world is the LDS temple program. Because when people make and keep covenants and temples, when our missionaries go and teach people to live the, the laws of the gospel, we actually fight poverty. And we, but we fight it at its roots. So any funds given to the church to further the work of Zion is a charitable humanitarian contribution. Now, a government may disagree with that, but of course they're going to. They have their own agenda. And so I'm opposed to all of this. <laughs> if you're going to, I think that it's unjust for a government to tell its citizens that they're going to be punished because they give money that will end up benefiting people in other countries. I think yeah. that that's, that's wrong. Okay. Um, but since the church knowingly knew what the tax law was, that, that's the issue here. I, 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 honestly, I don't disagree with you. The issue is that the church knew what the laws were in Australia. They created a shell company directly to try to benefit both Salt Lake and Australia and the Australian saints and the church in a way that um, flouted uh, Australian tax law. And that's why this has been this is, article points out that the Australian tax authority or organization, the ATO, is looking at the church's uh, use in here and could ex post facto come in and find the church a la SEC what happened in the United States in a similar manner. So what I want to say is we've had four tithing, we've had four, in my opinion, tax dust-ups in the church in the last year alone. The Canadian tax dust-up, the Australian LDS Charities one. We also had the Marshfield Advisors, which we don't have enough time to go into, but that was in Israel. And we had the SEC in the United States. That's four areas in the last year where the church is really pushing the envelope when it comes to reducing its tax, um, it, reducing its tax burden. Is that a wise course of action? I'm just mad they got caught. Um, <laughs> so so <laughs> I, I, I'm a believer that uh, you have to be pragmatic when it comes to the government. I think that you need to. Um, <laughs> and just so everyone knows, I'm not an official representative of the church. The IRS agents watching. I do pay my taxes. But I do believe that they, the thing is, is I think that the church needs to try and do all that it can to protect the sacred funds donated by members from Caesar. Okay. And I do, but I do now there is truth that we need to be wise about how we do that. I do believe um, that as a principle, we do want to honor and sustain the laws of the governments that we're working with while trying to as aggressively as we can without raising the ire of Caesar um, comply with his dictates. Christ had the same, you know, look, I always look at Christ and his relationship to Caesar. Christ was pragmatic towards Caesar and the way that he operated. And that's the way that his church and kingdom should operate as well so that they don't end up in a bad situation. So if these are issues, these are strategic errors, I do not see them as moral errors. And for those who have this extreme view in the church that we are to honor and sustain the law in all cases, they must be totally unfamiliar with the history of our church from the time of its inception until 1895, where the number one defining feature of our church was that we didn't obey the laws of the land because we believe that we were following a higher law. Now, all churches are obligated to this. Any Christian denomination, the Christian movement itself places God above the rulers of the world, and it allows for the ruling of the world to happen within as long as they conform to justice and righteousness. And we oppose laws and governments that, that abuse people and act unjustly. Um, that, that should be a given for a Latter-day Saint. And so when I look at all these things that the church has done, have they maybe made some strategic errors? Maybe they have. I don't know. But I, I, a lot of this stuff, I don't have a lot of judgment 
towards the leadership of the church over these matters because ultimately that's their stewardship. Like I give my money to the church and then I I allow for the church leaders to to manage those funds in according with the spirit that's in them and in accordance with the calling that they have to do that. Do they always get it right? Maybe not. They, they get things wrong sometimes. I know that Joseph Smith didn't do so well with the Kirtland Safety Society. So, you know, if we can if we can forgive Joseph for that, we can forgive them for any strategic errors that they may have made here. But we have to be careful that we don't place Caesar as the ultimate authority here and say, well, you leaders need to get in line with Caesar because it, it creates a dangerous sort of precedent in the church to where suddenly the government is, has our higher loyalty than uh, the loyalty of our faith. And... That is something that Christians throughout Christian history, we're studying Acts right now. If you want to go study the Christian movement, the big question was the relationship of these Christians to the state. And what kind of a kingdom are we establishing here? And is it a threat to the kingdoms of this world? And that's a really interesting whole other conversation to have. Okay, let me, we're, we've got to wrap this one up now. Notice since I'm the host, I get to spend the most amount of time with my pet peeve articles. So oh, you're that's good, why. You're good. <laughs> uh, the, just remember, just a couple of other last thoughts. We'll wrap this one up. The church is tax exempt in virtually every country that it operates with, in every municipality, in every state. So it's really tax exempt from a vast majority of its, um, of its holding. But what we've seen is in the various places in which governments do ask the church to pay a small portion, that the church will fight that tooth and nail. Now, you talked about render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. Now, remember, Jacob, that famous uh, uh, quote was specifically in answer to the question about whether people should pay tithing, obviously, you pay taxes to oppressive governments. Because you said that we shouldn't have a loyalty to oppressive governments, but that was what rendered under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And when he was asked specifically, should we pay taxes? He didn't say, no, hire the best lawyers you can, form fake shell companies, and then pay only the minimum that you possibly can if required by court order as a result of massive torts and significant regulatory pressure. No, he just said render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. I see a bit of a difference. I, I don't because I see that there's a little bit of a difference in that in the way I interpret that scripture. I see is he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and render unto God that which is God's. Well, I would ask the question, well, what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? I'm pretty sure everything belongs to God. And I think what Jesus was trying to do in that in that instance was that he was actually he was giving an answer that a Jew would look at and realize that he had just said that everything belongs to God, but that a Roman would hear and think, oh, he's he's going to pay his taxes. So he evaded the issue so far as I understand that scripture, but all the same. And I and even leaders of the church may not share that interpretation. And so, but all the same, I think that render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Remember, Caesar was an oppressive government. He was horrible. Jesus' relationship towards Caesar was pragmatic. He said, look, if they're going to come and take the money from you, cooperate. We're not here to raise the sword against Caesar and to draw ourselves into a violent conflict with the state. We are here to do our best to build the kingdom, given the fact that we are in these conditions where we have to, unfortunately... Uh, deal with Caesar and comply with his unfair dictates. And so I think that that's the way I look at it. I don't, I, I, and I, I, I hope the church pays the minimum and keeps every one of the, does everything it can to, to, to keep Caesar's greedy, dirty hands out of the money that I give to help build the kingdom of God. You know, there's a couple of other stories in the scriptures, especially around Jesus and taxes. Let me give you a couple of others here, too. Um, remember the legendary story of Jesus's birth with Mary and Joseph at the end, when his parents allegedly went to Bethlehem to do what? 
they what did they go to? And to be to registered pay, to, the right. to comply with the yeah, law. Yeah, legendary story. Now, I mean, Jesus's parents went on a potentially dangerous journey while Mary was pregnant to make sure that they were 100% above board. They didn't retain legal counsel or form shell companies to obfuscate the law. Well, those those didn't exist back then, too. Well, uh, all I can say is they lived in a society where they were already in Caesar, all the, all the world can be taxed. They, they were already paying 50 or 60% of their incomes to taxes in Rome to begin with, um, even without the census. In contrast, the church operates in a world where it is practically untaxed everywhere, but in the extremely modest areas where they have a small tax liability, they fight Caesar at every turn. This is a contrast between Jesus and Jesus's family. I, I just continue to see a contrast between what we read in the scriptures with what I see in the church. I think pragmatically, in the days of Caesar, the penalty was a lot higher than if uh, than if if you didn't comply with Caesar's tax laws. And maybe yeah. if those governments said we're going to come and kill the quorum of the twelve apostles and the prophet, maybe they would be a, take a little bit less risk. But you know, if they can pay a little five million dollar fine to protect an additional fifteen or twenty million in assets, maybe they'll they'll uh, they'll pay that fine. And I think that that's you know what? Again, my 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 feeling on it is purely pragmatic. I frame this entirely as Caesar and the kingdom of God. They're in opposition to one another, and we're trying our best to work within the bounds that Caesar will let us get away with. And I think Mary and Joseph, if they had broken the tax laws of Caesar, it would have been uh, pretty pretty stark consequences there. And, and, maybe, and, and to be honest, that's kind of what the article is saying. It's like, Caesar, we need to crack down on these Christians. We need to make sure that they, they, they pay their dues. And frankly, I'm sorry, I'm on the side of Jesus or Joseph and Mary. I'm not on the side of Caesar. So I, I don't have too much sympathy for this. My loyalty is to Christ. My loyalty is to the leaders of this church. And frankly, I want any money that I'm donated to uh, to the church um, to be in. I want the church. I want the government to forget those funds even exist. Okay, one other tax story from the New Testament here. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus, remember, he asked his disciples to go and catch a fish, and then they would open up the mouth of the fish, and there would be, I think it was one gospel said two or four drachmas that would satisfy their tax burdens. So Jesus subjected himself to the rules of the land, as should we. He doesn't didn't make it a complicated mess to pay taxes, and he encouraged his disciples to pay the, um, the, their necessary taxes. So Jesus himself said to pay it. His parents paid it. His disciples paid it. all of these. Not, there was no fight in any of this. And that's just what I see as a contrast um, between what between Jesus's church, who seems to have a very aggressive tax avoidance strategy, which seems to me to be in contrast. I could multiply these examples in the Bible. Seems to be in contrast to what we see in the scriptures. Yeah, I, I would just say that uh, I I think that what is going on in the scriptures is quite a different scenario because the penalties involved were quite different. And frankly, the, the, the more fundamental question here is what should our relationship be to Caesar? Should we gladly go and pay for his conquest of Gaul where he'll slay and murder and enslave all sorts of people? Is that what we should gladly – because that's what that money that Jesus was having them donate was actually being used for. We have to remember that this time the, the Roman legions were on the march throughout the world, enslaving and point. killing and oppressing everyone. And Jesus just said, hey, give them money. That's a big problem. But we have to remember this. So why would Jesus do that? The reason Jesus did it was purely pragmatic. It's because at the end of the day, if you don't give Caesar, if someone points a gun at your head and says, give me the money, you give them the money. Even if they're a bad person, you don't just take the bullet in the head if that's going to leave your family destitute. And so I've always viewed that, that the number one thing that I see when I think about the gospel and its relationship to government is that it is a, it is a pragmatic relationship. When the government does good we're in favor of it. When the government does evil, we oppose it. 
when it comes to taxation, we try to hold on to what we have because we believe that those funds are sacred and that we can use them better than can Caesar. And so I don't fundamentally see any issue. What I see is pragmatic differences. And so this isn't even a moral issue for me. It's purely a strategic, pragmatic issue that I leave essentially entirely in the hands of the brethren uh, so that they can manage the funds of the church. I promise I'm almost done. I've just got one last point to get through. Okay. And, and I, I was just thinking about this article and it's, it's because of the clandestine nature of the presiding bishopric and the quorum of the 15th's personal lives. It's almost impossible for me to evaluate their personal, uh, personal behavior because, you know, some vague general conference anecdotes and occasional highly curated personal stories in the Liahona, I don't get much from that. I don't have any personal interaction with the senior leaders of the church. They don't come to my stake. They don't come to my ward and they don't come over for me for dinner. So I can't evaluate them on a personal level, except for, like I said, those highly curated situations. However, um, I, we continue to learn very valuable information regarding the ethics of the senior leaders of the church in the corporate sphere. And this particular article, for instance, is an example that the more that I learn, the less inspired I become. Yeah, I, um, I don't share that because I think that if, in fact, I'm the more our leaders resist funding the conquest of Gaul and Babylon and the, and the works of corrupt governments and states, the more I'm like, right on, guys, like keep going. And I hope that every Latter-day Saint will try to hold on to as much as they can. We all, by the way, try and minimize our tax burden. We yeah. all try and do that within the rules, and we all push it as far as we can, even in the gray areas, to the degree that we think we can, uh, th that it's justifiable, right? Um, and and that is a gray area in and of itself. But the reason that you want to hold on to those funds is because you think you can use those funds better than can Caesar and the government. If you didn't, then you give them voluntarily. So at the end, as I look at all of this, um, and the ethics of the leaders, I, I, I made a video on my channel, I encourage everyone to go watch it about the church's finances. D. Michael Quinn, who is excommunicated from the church, probably gave the most powerful testimony I've ever heard of the church's finances after he was excommunicated. Um, he, he was talking with the Salt Lake Tribune, or I think we're trying to really get him to rip on the church. And instead what he did was he said that the leaders of the church have access to almost unimaginable funds and they only take a small stipend that probably is in accordance with that of a mid-level high school administrator in California. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, so, and these men do unimaginable amounts of not, not religious work, secular work within the church, managing universities, massive logistics operations, all of these kinds of things. And so when it comes to their personal character in relation to these things, that's one of the that's one of the like big things in my testimony list is that these men show immense restraint and are able to avoid utilizing these funds for things that are not ultimately dedicated to the benefit, as D. Michael Quinn said, of the rank and file members. And what rank and file members get almost all of this money? They're the rank and file members in places like Africa, the Philippines and the other areas where the church is trying to develop. Right now, the church is in a bit of a predicament because the church knows that it's North American membership, which pro which provides essentially all the tithing money for the church of any significant quantity. And they're and they're growing fast outside in places like Africa and the Philippines where there isn't a lot of money coming in. And so it's created this this savings account that can continue to fund the work of the church internationally. And so I have a 
giant testimony of both the brethren when it comes to their personal access to these funds and how much self-control they use and how they pay church employees twice what they make. True. And then on the other hand, um, uh, and also how these funds are ultimately used for whose benefit, for our benefit and to build the kingdom. And so anytime the government is getting in a mess with that, I'm just like, I don't like it. <laughs> Let me give you one last question. And this is my final question for you, Jacob. And that's, should we follow, should we, I'll say, should I follow, should I follow the church's same eth ethically questionable tax avoidance approach in either my own individual life or in the small businesses that I run? Should I follow this church's approach here? Um, I wouldn't say it's unethical to do all that you can to minimize tax burdens upon you because I trust you with your money more than I trust uh, Caesar. And so I think Latter-day Saints uh, should, within the bounds of the law, minimize their tax burdens to the greatest degree possible. And I think, but they also need to be very wise about how they do this. And maybe the church has been unwise. I'm not saying that. If the church has been unwise, they've been unwise and maybe they've, they've done some things that, but I'm going to leave that to their judgment. But be wise because you're dealing with Caesar. If Caesar tells you to go and register for the tax and you got to take your wife on a donkey to do it to avoid being put to death, then you do it. <laughs> and Caesar has a lot of power. And so I don't advise people to do stupid tax things ideologically because Jesus understood the consequences of that and you'll find out the consequences of that. So do your best to comply with the tax laws while at the same time minimizing your tax burden because I trust you with your money more than I trust the government. Well, um, Jacob, we have accomplished virtually the impossible considering your YouTube video channel and how, um, shall we say, dynamic your normal interactions are. This has been relatively sedate. <laughs> well, thanks. You're a, you're a, you're a gracious host, slow dive. You're, you're easy to talk to and get along with. Thank you. <laughs> I have accomplished what Jim Bennett and Steve Heinecker failed to do. So I guess I'll just put that into my feather and my cap there. I got to I gotta boast on something. It's a pride cycle. So I've got to be right on the top of the pride cycle. Now, Jacob, we, we drop these episodes live on uh, YouTube Sundays at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you, uh, if you show up on my YouTube channel, you will be able to interact with the live chat then. And I just want to give a shout out. We Our episodes music is brought by uh, as a uh, brought to us by Weird Alma on Bandcamp.com. And thanks so much for ruminating with me on the Great Spacious Beehive. And remember, remember, no one on a hallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. So long. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for, for supporting us on Patreon.com.